Let's open in prayer, and we'll jump right into our evening tonight. Dear God, we thank you so much for uh, this hour, and we thank you for your word that reveals truth to us, not, um, not only um, about you and your grace and your mercy, but also how Christians are to live life. And so we pray that uh, your word again tonight would answer our, uh, our curiosities and our questions regarding uh, that, and we pray that, uh, that we would recalibrate to you as, as opposed to forcing you to, to fit into our plans, that we wouldn't uh, redirect the compass, but we would allow your compass to be our direction through your word. And so we thank you for this and the ministry that we can do for our entire family tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, Wednesday nights are about uh, getting to know our Bible better, and this is a fun way that we're doing it. We're calling this You Asked For It. You have sent in a lot of questions to us. Pastor Chuck and I are always impressed with the questions that you ask us. You send us email questions, and in the office each morning we pray together and we talk, and we always say, man, this is, this is a good reminder for us, and we always say it'd be a good reminder for everyone. But how do we ever string all those together to teach all of those things at any one time? And we just don't really ever are able to do that. And so that's what this series is about. We're wanting to apply God's Word to our daily life. And so those are the, the questions that we're uh, attempting to answer from God's Word. The Bible is, is about the practical as well as it is the spiritual or the godly. And it brings the two together, brings our practical into the spiritual world. And so we want you to know that your Bible is good for every day. The questions that you have for every day and should I's and what abouts. And so keep texting in those questions. All right. Well, we're going to start with Pastor Chuck. He gets the very first question today. So here's the first one, Pastor. Can a person who confesses their sins to a Catholic priest without confessing their sins to God and claims that Mary is a mediator for salvation, can that person be saved? Let me just start off by saying what I noticed about this question um, <clears throat> regarding salvation. First of all, I don't see the name of Jesus anywhere in this. Now, it's not even uh, referencing him about redemption or salvation. And second thing I noticed is that there's actually two persons that are mentioned in this question as, uh, as a means of redemption and uh, salvation. as a Catholic priest and... Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, in taking this question at face value, if someone, you know, to be saved, uh, having saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, um, I don't see how you could actually be saved if it's apart from Jesus. So, I would say absolutely not. That's my answer. We're done. No. Uh, <laughs> let me read a couple of verses. First Timothy 2 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. One more verse. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, with that being said, personally, I have uh, a background. In regards to the Catholic faith, uh, I was actually raised a Catholic. I know that the Catholic faith doesn't usually leave out Jesus and their belief in what is necessary for forgiveness and redemption, and that is leads to salvation. But the Catholic faith, as well as many so-called Christian groups, 
try to attach things to Jesus, the biblical salvation. For we know that salvation is not found in a true church. Salvation is not found in uh, good works. It's not uh, found in a sincere heart. Um, salvation is not found making up uh, past sins by efforts or restoration or penance or indulgences. Salvation before God is not actually administered to us through an earthly priest that sprinkles water on us or gives us uh, penance or tells us to recite some sort of formula prayers. Salvation for the Christian is not kept through the, the effort of person who, who hopes and actually tries or worries about whether or not they're going to keep their faith by good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is so clear. It says, for by grace you are saved through faith in that and out of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not a result of works that no one should boast. So having already answered the question, taking it at face value, again, I say absolutely not, but I would venture to say that most might want to kind of reinterpret this question this way. Can a person in a Catholic faith be saved? I would say yes if they put their faith and trust in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior. As a Catholic, I was taught about Jesus. I was taught about his grace. I was taught about his redemption. I was taught about his dying on the cross for the sins of the world. But at the time, I understood it wasn't complete just with Jesus, that it wasn't completely free, that there was something I had to do to make myself worthy of that redemption through works. Therefore, I, I can say for me personally, at that time in my life, my faith was in a different Jesus. It wasn't the Jesus of grace and truth of the Bible. But to get back to this reinterpreted question that I said, can a person in the Catholic faith be saved? Really, we should answer this more truthfully. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. For, for it's really not up to me or anyone to determine someone's salvation. Our calling as God's children is to basically know, live, and share God's truth as free redemption and grace. A lot of our questions tonight are going to circle around this idea of salvation and what it is. Not the next question, though. The next question, is it biblical to be a vegan by choice? Should I raise my kids as vegans? Well, you already know my thoughts on this side. The word vegan is not in the Bible, and so it's not biblical. Done. Um, just because something is not in the Bible, though, does not mean that it's not biblical. For instance, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The Bible is very clear about one God being in three distinct persons. And so just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean that it is or isn't biblical. You have to understand what the Bible has to say about it. And this re really revolves around our, our freedom, our liberty as a Christian. You kind of already know that. But let me kind of give you a very quick overview, a flyover of God's dietary plans for people. And it's actually in Scripture. In Genesis 1, verse 29, it says, this is the beginning of God's dietary plan. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth 
and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And so there you go. Veganism, okay? Now remember, this is the Garden of Eden before sin, before anything else. That's the time that and some Christians, some you know, pro-vegetarian or pro-vegan will point to this one saying this is God's ordained way to eat food and anything else would be wrong, except in Genesis chapter 9, this is updated right after the, the flood of Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, uh, God says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. <laughs> now we turn to things that walk on, on legs, all right? And it says, I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So just like you could eat all the green things, now you can eat all the moving things. And Noah's like, all right, let's throw something on the barbecue next to that broccoli. Let's go for it. But then you remember in Leviticus and all the Levitical laws, we're not going to read all that, but then it puts some restrictions on that everything. Uh, these are the clean, these are the unclean, the things, the things are clean, you can sacrifice and you can eat, and these are the unclean things that are not to eat. And there's a long list of not good things, not clean things to eat. Shrimp. So no all-you-can-eat shrimp anymore at Red Lobster. But then that all changes again, but thousands of years later, all the way in the New Testament, when Jesus um, updates that in the book of Mark, in the Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside, through the mouth, whatever goes into a person from the outside, you know, the coffee, the cookies, the, you know, what, it cannot defile him. Because, you know, Jesus is way more concerned about the spiritual than he is about the physical. He says, because it does not go to his heart. Jesus' concern was about the heart. But into his stomach and it's eliminated. That's what happens when it comes in here, goes in here, and then out there, and that's it. <laughs> what does that matter? And so then there's these little parentheses there, this, this commentary that says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. So he starts with complete vegetarian, vegan, and then he goes to everything, and then there's some parameters on the everything, and Jesus says, just go for it. I care about your heart. And so there's the expanse. But in Romans... And in Corinthians, it talks about people who had a concern. Remember that? Those people who had a concern about eating the meat that were offered to the idol, so they only ate vegetables. And that's where in Romans it says, you accept each other. Some of you have this heart condition where you have this, this conviction that it would be wrong for me to eat the meat. And so don't eat the meat because that would be sinning against your own conscience. But that doesn't necessarily mean someone else shouldn't be eating the Dodger dog. You just can't eat the Dodger dog, all right? Now, I'm a Dodger dog fan, okay? And so the Bible says, you Dodger dog fans, you make sure that you accept those people who are eating vegetables and vice versa because their conviction in their heart is what's driving their decision there. And so what's the answer to this? Is it biblical to be a vegan? Sure, it's certainly allowed, but not required, and your conviction to be a vegan is not someone else's conviction to be a vegan. Uh, You don't make someone else do that just because you're convicted of it. Um, Just like someone who's putting something on the barbecue that walked before doesn't mean that they should require you to do the same thing, all right? So this just falls into the area of your liberty, and you can decide what you want regarding what you eat. Go Dodger Dogs. All right, Pastor Chuck, the next one is for you. 
Uh, mentions a couple of verses, Isaiah 53, verse 5, and Matthew 8, 14 to 17. They both seem to include spiritual as well as physical healing. What do you think? Okay. Um, let's go straight to the source, the two verses that are actually referenced. Um, I'm going to read Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. This is uh, the prophet Isaiah, some 750 years prior to Christ uh, going to the cross. And the following verse, verse 6, I have to read it as well because it makes it real clear who he went to the cross for. Verse 6, let me just read that. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all to fall on him. So, obviously, we are those sheep that have gone astray, um, you and me. And we have uh, turned our own way. We've re rejected many of the things of God. And the whole chapter of Isaiah 53 is this beautiful picture of our suffering Savior that took upon the sins of the world to heal us from the bondage of sin. However, uh, from Israel's perspective, this was a promise of both spiritual and physical healing. Um, looking not just to just Jesus' first coming as a humble, suffering servant, but also as a triumphant king of kings in all his glory at the second coming when he actually set up his millennial kingdom uh, here on earth. So the nation of Israel has always saw the Messiah as a savior of both spirit and body, not just spiritual. Now, if you just fast forward 750 years from Isaiah's prophecy to Jesus' first coming, we see that Jesus' first coming um, to be fulfilled in prophecy, but it's done in part. For the kingdom of God will only arrive in its fullness and spiritual, physical healing at the second coming of the Lord. And this is kind of a mystery, um, the mystery of the kingdom, and surprising fact that the kingdom actually comes in two ages or two stages, not just one. For the first stage is just first, his first coming as a humble servant, a uh, humble suffering servant on a donkey with the branches of peace and forgiveness, spiritual healing. And then later at the second coming, as the king of glory, as uh, on a great white horse with a sword for judgment, and that's physical healing. All kingdom blessings have been fulfilled at the first coming, but the actual consummation of what Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection are still future. So with that as a setting of Isaiah 53, let me just read the other verse that's referenced Matthew eight seventeen. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to start at 16. <laughs> when evening came, they, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a, with a word and healed all who were ill. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So uh, prior to these two verses I just read, Jesus was healing a leper. He was healing the centurion's servant that was paralyzed. He was actually healing 
Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with fever. And then, of course, verse 16 that I read is kind of a summary of what all Jesus was healing at that time. And verse 17 really just states the fulfillment that Jesus is the true Messiah, referencing back to Isaiah 53 and accomplishing from his first coming the spiritual and the physical restoration and healing of mankind. But only partially inaugurated in the kingdom age at his first coming. But we will be completely when Jesus consummates the actual physical kingdom at the second coming here on earth. The age since Jesus first came has, in a sense, begun the kingdom age. But it's a fallen age, okay? It's, it's according to Hebrews 6.5 that we have actually tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. We know that Christ already has purchased our spiritual and our physical healing as we saw in these verses uh, referenced here, but we still groan. We still get sick, don't we? And we long for the redemption of our physical bodies, and that's referenced to Romans 8.23 and 2 Corinthians 4.16. We have already passed from the spiritual death to life, 1 John 3.14, but we still physically die, don't we? 1 Corinthians 15.26. So to the answer to this question, Referring both to the spiritual and physical healing? Yes, it is. Both physical and spiritual healing have been accomplished by Jesus in his first coming, but the total restoration of both spiritual and physical healing is still future at Jesus' second coming when we will be with him and with our new bodies and our glorified bodies, actually perfect bodies uh, in his millennial kingdom. Just side note real quick, this is not to say that our bodies can't be healed today in this age. And they have and they will be and continue to be. But it, there's no guarantee or promise in this age. None of us would argue that we're free from, from dying in these bodies, right? We're all going to die. We know that. Even if we got spiritually healed or physically healed, I should say, we're still going to die. And so... So yes, these two verses are referring to the spiritual and physical healing. Sorry, brother, I went over. Whew. That was a long one. <laughs> there's a lot. When you guys ask these questions, there's a lot to unpack in a very short amount of time. Next question. If someone asks Jesus into their heart as a child, but completely turns away from God for the rest of their life, will they still go to heaven? Does anybody know somebody like that who's professed faith in Jesus and then now doesn't live a life like that? Am I the only one that is praying for people like that? Okay. I think we probably know people like that. But what about that? Well, e it's easy to say, I don't know. I'm not God. God is the one that knows them and knows their heart and, and loves them more than I do. Um, so ultimately, I don't know. But the Bible does give us some parameters and some clarity here. Maybe the first clarity would be to address how you get saved, and it's not by asking Jesus into your heart. We know that, right? I, I understand that's a euphemism that we get for salvation, but since we're talking about salvation, let's get to it. The simplest description of salvation that I can find is in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, and that's where Paul and Silas is in jail, and the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? I mean, that's a pretty direct question. The apostle Paul answers very simply, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. <laughs> that is the simplest. So that, that is the way of salvation, belief in who Jesus is. 
eh? God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, dying on the cross for the sins of people because he lived a perfect life, something no human could do, rising from the grave, proving that he is God. So everybody who puts their faith and trust in that Jesus, their faith in him, their belief in who he is, now has their sins forgiven and washed away. That's where salvation comes from, not by asking Jesus into your heart. Okay? Clarity. But let's move on now to answering this question. What about those people? Are they in heaven? Well, going back to last week, so I won't read the scripture, but there are two principles that really guide this one too, the same two that we studied last week, meaning principle number one, salvation is free. There's nothing that we add to salvation. Salvation is completely free. It's not cheap. Jesus had to die for it, um, but it's free to us. And secondly, the second principle that we use here is that salvation is secure, meaning there's nothing that we can do to jump out of God's hands. Once we are in God's hands, we can't even climb out of that security of our salvation. And so what does that mean for these people that at one point professed verbally their faith in Jesus, but now are living a life completely antithetical to anything that would be godly at all? You look at them and you... You know, there's some people that I'm praying for that I baptize. I mean, I know what came out of their mouth. I, I know. And yet now I'm praying for their salvation because they're living a life that certainly wouldn't reflect any um, biblical word here, fruit in their life. So what about them? So we apply these two principles, and there are two options for those people. Not three, two options. One option is, no, they're not saved. That's one option. Uh, a verbal profession... Uh, of salvation does not mean that they are saved. And people pray a prayer or ask Jesus into their heart for a whole lot of reasons. Maybe to please their Sunday school teacher, or maybe to please their parents, um, or maybe to, to do what all their other friends are doing at a particular event, or when they're older, to, to please their spouse, to get back in good graces with their spouse, or to receive a little bit of relief or peace. But those, that's not salvation. We, we read what salvation is, belief in a Savior of Jesus, who he says he is in the Bible. And so there are people who pray a prayer for a lot of other reasons than belief. And so obviously God knows their heart, and that person would not be saved even though they professed it because it's, there's a lot of verbal profession, but the verbal must come from a heart change, not just a mouth change. So that's option one. No, they're not saved. Option two is... Yes, they are saved because they genuinely put their belief in Jesus, the one that the Bible talks about, and so they are eternally secure. Okay? It was free for them, too, just like it was for you, and they are secure just like it is secure for you. The Bible talks about the quenching of the Spirit, or the grieving of the Spirit in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and that just means that a person's heart can get so hard that the Holy Spirit's poking, jabbing, Hey, kicking, and, and they've so suppressed, that's the quenching, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit, they've suppressed it so much that they don't even notice, they don't feel it, um, they, and they now, they're way off track. But at some point in time, they, they climbed into God's hands, and you can't climb out of God's hands. You're like, that's not even fair. That is not right. How can it be that someone can live a, a, a godly life their entire life, and at death, then they go to heaven, and then someone else who lives a completely terrible, evil, murderous, Satan-worshipping life, and then on their deathbed, put their belief in the Jesus of the Bible, and they go to heaven too. How is that even fair? I don't know. <laughs> Do any of us deserve heaven? No. None of us deserve heaven. 
We're, we're all sinners, and we all, what is fair, is all for us to pay our own fine in hell. That's fair. And so all of us are under God's grace and his mercy at salvation. And so someone, the longer you live, just you receive more grace and mercy <laughs> when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. So there's two options. Yes, they're saved because they put their belief in Jesus, or now obviously they have a hard heart and they're far from Jesus, but they're going to heaven. Or two, no, they never did in the first place, but I don't know the answer which one it is, but there is not a third one. There's not a third option. A lot of people like to have a third option. The third option for a lot of people is, yes, they were saved, but now they're not because they did some bad things. But what that would equal is a works-based salvation. That, yeah, yeah, it was free at the beginning, but now I have to do good things to maintain it. And if I don't do those good things to maintain it, then I lose it. Now that's a works-based salvation. And I can't find that justified anywhere in Scripture. That would seem fair to us, though, right? I get it. I get it why we want that one. Um, but I don't see that one in Scripture anywhere um, Verbal professions, what this would be in and of themselves, do not equal salvation. Uh, salvation is a belief in the, the Christ that is in Scripture. And is someone going to heaven? I don't know. You don't want me to know. <laughs> um, God knows, and he knows them and loves them more than we do. So keep praying for them. If you know someone like that, just pray for their salvation. If, if they are already saved and you're praying for their salvation, well, I guess you're doing too much praying. Okay, the next one is, this is why I give this one to Pastor Chuck. <laughs> Biblical stand on marijuana and cannabis and CBD. What does the Bible think of that? Okay, well, I can say one thing. that it's, This is a good thing, that I'm not an expert in this. <laughs> but from what I know, marijuana and the cannabis and the CBD, it all comes from the cannabis plant. Marijuana is really the leaves, and the cannabis... Is referred to as the whole plant, but also refers to maybe the seeds. It could be the seeds. And, uh, of course, CBD is really kind of like a compound found in the marijuana plant or the uh, cannabis plant. There are actually some differences uh, of how each part of this cannabis uh, plant are used. And those differences have to do whether one actually gets high, altering their state of mind, or whether they use it for pain relief with little or no effect to the mind, so they say. Those differences determine its use, as whether it's recreational or medical. And I'm not going to argue uh, those differences, whether they are true or not, but I bring up these differences to establish an ongoing discussion, or I should say a debate, between the idea of recreational or medical use of marijuana. Now, to start off my discussion for biblical view, first and foremost, I am going to assume that wherever the Christian is asking this question, that they are asking it from a place where it's legal. Okay? Romans 12, 13, 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Or 1 Peter 2, 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to king as one in authority. So, as we look at the, the biblical view regarding marijuana, um, used recreationally, providing it's legal, if it is used recreationally, that means it is mood-altering. That means it's, it does something to your mind. It creates kind of this, I don't know, 
pleasant euphoria of some sort. Um, but it's, it's not generally thought of as making one more attentive to reality. It's actually the opposite, <laughs> oblivious to reality. It's a recreational escape, and for, from what I understand, it becomes actually destructive force to the brain. And it brings lasting and negative effects to, for your brain to actually function as God intended your brain to function. If that's all true, then the principle from the Bible that should lead the Christian away from recreational use of marijuana, because our body is a temple. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? So the root here is that God has given us minds to know him and to be able to give our hearts to him, to love him. And a Christian is going to want to actually turn away from anything that is going to numb us or dull us or distract us, distract our minds uh, away from actually getting to know him better and love him more. So with that said, regarding recreational use of marijuana, I would not be opposed a kind of medical use of marijuana that is controlled by licensed doctors who are have an oversight of profession for prescriptions. Um, we have lots of drugs that are sold by pre prescriptions that if they were abused would be destructive and even maybe more destructive than marijuana. So to me, in a nutshell, this quick view of the biblical stand of marijuana, that's, that's what I think. Okay? Who, want, who wants to fight with Pastor Chuck afterwards now? <laughs> Moving right along. Did cavemen... I give props to whoever asked this question. I mean, you have some creative brains, all right? Did cavemen or cavewomen... Uh, did they go to hell or did they go to heaven? That is a good question, isn't it? I mean, that, that kind of gets your brains thinking a little bit. I think the way we define cavemen is the way that we answer this question. When we say cavemen, if we mean cavemen like um, the, what most people think of as cavemen, you know, somewhere in between the monkey and the human being, you know, kind of beginning to grow facial features that still lives outside and... Uh, kind of grunts a little bit and, you know, carries a club in one hand and drags his wife by the hair on the other side and, you know, just figured out fire, but, you know, the wheel is still a little bit away. Like, if that's what we're thinking of as cavemen, which that's all what you thought, right, when we read that, then the answer is no. They did not go to heaven and they did not go to hell because they never existed, okay? That person never got there. It was never a thing. Okay? Because in Genesis, the book, the book of Genesis in the Bible tells us all about where people came from. And I happen to interpret the Bible, we at Grace do, in the book of Genesis in a very literal way, which means that we believe that God created everything that we see in the world in six literal 24-hour days. Now, I, I realize that's not what 
anybody else is talking about. Not at my kid's school, not at any museums that we go to, not on the Netflix, you know, outdoor documentaries, not on the Discovery Channel. They're all talking about the millions of years that it took to get to a human. And so if it took a million years or two million or three million, the numbers keep getting bigger because they need more time. Then that's where you get the caveman because you get some in between and some in between. But when you interpret the Bible literally, like Genesis is accurate in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where people came from, well, God made a fully mature human being and another one all in one day. There was no cave. They were fully mature, just like the entire planet was fully mature. When Adam and Eve got there on day one, there were already fruiting plants fully mature that they could eat on day one. The entire world was mature as soon as God created it. The trees were fully mature. The, everything was fully, including Adam and Eve, right? Okay, and so by cavemen, if we mean the knuckle-dragging, it's fun to imagine, it never happened. Now, if we're talking cavemen like the Flintstones, I think the Flintstones are right on. You know, uh, Fred and Wilma, uh, Barney. What's Barney's wife's name? Betty. Betty, Betty, Betty. And they ride on the dinosaur to work. I think that is, we laugh at it, that is accurate. There are fossils where there are dinosaur tracks and human tracks right next to each other in the same rock layer. Well, how did that happen? I saw it on TV. Fred did it. Okay? So if we're talking Fred and Barney and Bam Bam and Pebbles, now we have something to talk about, okay? But all that really means is that these are just people before Christ. And the, the Old Testament is full of people who put their belief in, in a Messiah or in God, what they knew of a Messiah. We know 1,000 years before and 2,000 years before and 3,000 years before. I mean, did Daniel go to heaven? Sure. Did Isaac go to heaven? Sure. Abraham, Noah, did they? Sure. Did, did Adam and Eve go to heaven? Yes, they did. Absolutely they did. But what was the way to get to heaven? That, I think that's the key. Um, we're talking about salvation a lot today. And salvation has always been the same for all of time since Adam and Eve all the way until today has been faith in a Messiah, okay? belief in a Messiah. In the Old Testament, it, it, they didn't know much, it, but it was always faith in a coming Messiah. And they were not saved by doing sacrifices in the Old Testament. The old sacrifices merely covered up the sin. And that's when Jesus comes and he says, it is finished, it is paid in full. All of those sins are finally paid for. It's all removed, it's all done. Um, it wasn't sacrificing of animals that did it. All the sacrificing of an animal was doing was saying, yes, I have the faith in a future lamb of God that will really take away the sins of the world, and this is just my little way of representing it. That's all the sacrifice was. And looking forward to a future Messiah. And so anybody in the Old Testament who put their faith, what they knew of it, in the Messiah, well, they were certainly saved. They went to paradise. And Jesus told the... Um, uh, the, the Sadducees in the New Testament in Matthew 22, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And this is what Jesus says. He says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, referring the, to the Old Testament, because they, they were still in Old Testament when Jesus was there. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? 
being already told to you that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And those words only have meaning if those people that he mentioned, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if, if they were all present with God, uh, uh, conscious, alive in, in the presence of God at that moment. And so did cavemen? Well, if they put their belief in what they knew of Messiah at that point, then absolutely yes. Now, when did their bodies actually get resurrected? Well, for, the, for everybody who is, who's become a believer since the death of Christ and the resurrection and all of that, all of our bodies will be resurrected if we're dead. We'll go, up into he, we'll go up and meet Jesus in the air at the rapture, but not the Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints, that will happen in a future time in Jesus' second coming. Okay? And so that's cavemen. All right? Did not exist, but who knows? You might see Fred and Barney in heaven. All right. Pastor Chuck, are there any <laughs> verses about doing the right thing, even though doing the right thing would have negative consequences? Uh, I, I love this question um, because it, it really kind of gets at the heart uh, of how true Christians are to act in the midst of adversity. I'm assuming, though, that the uh, negative consequences mentioned here are speaking of trials, difficulties, suffering. And so let me just read 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13 in regards to suffering. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal amongst you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Peter is specifically referring to the suffering Christians of his time, but it also refers to the suffering Christians from the last 2,000 years, as well as us today. Uh, Peter says to the Christian, do not be surprised when that fiery ordeal comes your way. Basically, he's saying, do not be shocked. <laughs> Don't be caught off guard. And the term fiery ordeal, it's talking about a refiner's fire. You know, like you would stick metal in to get the impurities out of that metal to make it more pure for a, a better use. And so Peter says, don't be shocked at the refiner's fire, for it is God's testing to purify you. This fire ordeal is basically a test from God to, to draw out the, the dross or the impurities from, from our lives to prepare us for a more valuable use in his kingdom. So... Here's one reason among many scriptures that reveals for us uh, to do the, the right thing, even though it may have negative results or negative consequences. Here's another verse uh, in regards to that, 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and you do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So here again, as Christians doing the right thing, yet it can reap negative consequences, but it results in, in blessings at the very end. So you, you're doing the right thing, and then you're having the negative consequences of difficulties and trials within it, but then there's something at the end, uh, a blessing. There's another verse here, 
1 Peter 3, 17 and 18. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So the best example for doing right is Jesus. Jesus himself. He did the right thing. He, he never complained at all. He went to the cross, never said anything about what, how he was being wronged. And we know that he was perfect. He never did one thing wrong. He was sinless. And yet he willingly was reviled, he was beaten, and then he was killed. And Peter says that we are actually to be like Jesus, to be like Christ, um, who did perfectly right without any sin, yet he reaped negative consequences in regards to the trials, the pain, the agony, the suffering, but there was also what he did was great, right, for each and every one of us because we would not have a way to God without it. Here's another verse. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And one more, for momentary light affliction is produced for us in an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So the, the, the common final result that we see in every one of these examples that I, I, I read here, including Jesus, is that if you do right and there may be some negative consequences, but they're temporary. <laughs> they're just they're just temporary suffering. And like I mentioned here, momentary light affliction. When you compare it to the final result of positive rewards for eternity. <laughs> I mean, that is amazing. So by our suffering, we are being prepared for the kingdom. So by our suffering, we are actually being blessed at the end. And by our suffering, we actually get to be with God. Well, I'm glad that Jesus did the right thing, even though there was some consequences to it. All right, next one. I have a friend who is donating her eggs. I'm assuming we're not talking about <laughs> hard-boiled. <laughs> is this biblical? Obviously, we're talking about fertility clinics and that. Okay, so there's some principles that we can apply to this. Principle number one, uh, where babies come from. This might not be terribly surprising to you, but Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 tells us where babies come from. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That one flesh is where babies come from. Babies come from a man and a woman being joined together, together for life in something called marriage, and they have intercourse, and that is where babies come from. We agreed with that principle biblically? And that one probably wasn't terribly difficult. The next one might, might be a, a little bit more. Um, where should children be raised? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us where children should be raised. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So where should ch children be raised? With mommy and daddy. That's where children should be raised. That's optimal. Now, I realize that there are some parents who are single parents, and I think even they would tell you that that is not optimal. 
um, the best plan, the most optimal plan, is that they would be with mom and dad. And I think God has special grace, special blessing for single parents. But the best place that kids can be raised is with mom and dad. They had their baby from one flesh. So that's principle one. Principle two. Principle number three, we can't read scripture on this just because there's so much of it, that God is pro-life. God is pro-life, meaning wants to keep things alive that are in the womb. That's what I mean by pro-life. That he wants to keep things that are alive that are in the womb. I mean, there's so much scripture. I had, it, I had to reduce the font just to cram it all on here. Um, but the Bible talks about how we value life in Psalm 100 and Isaiah 64 and Isaiah 44, who the creator is of the preborn. Of course, that's God, how God is concerned about the preborn, um, that God is the one that's responsible for life and for death. The Bible talks about what to do with children that are conceived in rape and incest and if they should be aborted or not. And of course, it's no, they should not be. Should a child who is disabled or deformed, should they be aborted? The Bible talks about that. The answer is no. God is pro-life. He wants to keep things that are alive in the womb alive, okay? So those are three principles that now we can begin to base our, our answer to this question on. There's going to be a fourth principle at the end here. So let's start with that last one first, the abortion side of things, the pro-life or abortion side of fertility clinics. Fertility clinics require a signature from all the end users of the sperm and the egg that they sign that there will be abortion. And the reason for that signature is because of the way that the, the fertilization of those eggs happen. Uh, when a husband and wife, when they get married and there's intercourse, the way that egg is fertilized is way different than the way the egg is fertilized in the laboratory. So when a man and a woman have intercourse, it is the most healthy, the most successful sperm that finally is the one that you know, meets the egg and kapow. Right? And all the weak ones, the ones that couldn't make it, were not that one. But in the petri dish, where the donated egg and the donated sperm get put together, now all the sperm on, are on equal, it's an equal playing field now. And so it's completely at random how that egg is going to get fertilized. And so then that is why in a fertility clinic, they will implant multiple fertilized eggs. And they'll watch them grow, and they will weed out, which is a terrible term because it's aborting, the ones that are not growing the way that they hope. This is the math of fertility clinics. You get the donated eggs and you implant them multiply. Remember uh, Nadia Suleiman, the, the octomom? Remember that one? So she had 12 put inside of her. And so the doctor lost his license to be able to practice in the U.S. He's now working overseas somewhere because he did not abort some of those eggs. And she ended up having eight babies from that because he didn't do what is the standard practice in the fertility clinic. And so that's how it happens. So already you can kind of tell <laughs> where I'm going with this, okay? But let's go to that other principle that we mentioned there. Um, where should children be raised? Well, who's getting these babies? Because it's mostly, it's the, the percentage of people who get the babies from the Petri dish, from the fertility clinic, the percentage is relatively low of married couples, man and woman, married couples. It's relatively low because generally they're able to have babies on their own. So who's getting these babies? Well, same-sex couples are getting these babies. 
women who want to have children but don't have someone who's willing to have a baby with them, um, unmarried couples. Obviously, we've already said a biblical principle is the best place for a child is with mommy and daddy. And so now all of a sudden, these babies that are getting put together in a Petri dish are not being with mommy and daddy. They're being in some other less optimal situation. I didn't know much about any of this at all until several years ago, uh, maybe not 10, I counseled a young girl who was donating her eggs. Man, I learned a lot from her. I, I wondered why. Why would she, why, why did you do it, you know? And, and here's what she said. Here were her reasons. One was money. She was, you know, a college student. And I mean, what does she care? I, it's, <laughs> she's not using it. And so she can make money on it. But I don't think the, the end result justifies the, the money. We're talking abortion. We're talking about babies ending up with same-sex couples, babies ending up in places that are not their mommy and their daddy. And so I don't think the money is a great reason. Um, some, some girls donate their eggs because they feel like that they're essentially not allowing life to flourish if they just let their eggs go away. But we talked about last week how an egg set by itself for a million years is not going to become life. So as that egg is, is removed from the body each month, that, that's not abortion happening. That's just part of the body that's leaving. And then maybe, you know, sperm might come along the next month and might, you know, make a, a baby. And the third reason that she did it, and it was the most, I, I could identify with this one, she wanted to help people who couldn't have babies. That's what she wanted. She wanted to help people. And I mean, who's, who can argue with that? Well, I think there's a fourth principle, biblically, that would argue with that. And, and the principle would be that, if God's direction is different than ours, then we adjust our direction. We don't change the compass. Does that make sense? That if for some reason God didn't allow my wife and I to be able to have a baby, I'm intimately close to this. My sister and brother-in-law are not able to have kids together, and they did not know that when they got married. They were planning on having a, a family, and they can identify with barren women in the Bible. And so... What do you do? You adjust your compass to God's. Maybe a family is not what God has planned for me, but we certainly don't fiddle with the compass and slam some science in there, and all of a sudden now that's where a baby comes from because we know biblically a baby comes from one man, one woman becoming one flesh for life, and then from that comes the greatness of kids if God allows for that. I know that there's a lot of emotions that tie to this one because I've experienced the emotions. And it is difficult to change your compass when you really had something else in mind. But I think these principles give us a pretty clear direction on fertility clinics. And Pastor Chuck and I never encourage families to go this testing of pregnancy route and weeding out the, you know, God's will is grander even than ours in this area, even though it might be difficult. All right? Well, follow that up, Chuck. Pull us out of, <laughs> pull us out of that. We're not going to get to all of our questions tonight, by the way. What is a clear, concise definition of what it means to glorify God? One of the best definitions that I can really kind of draw from Scripture about glorifying God is uh, recorded in Psalm of David, and it's not in the Book of Psalms. It's in First Chronicles sixteen, twenty-eight. 
and 29. So let me just read that. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. You know, from David's psalm, we, we as God's people are to actually give God the glory he deserves. And it says here, with all our strength, and we are to, to give to God the glory that all he deserves by actual sacrifice and worship as well. Because uh, we know God. Right? I mean, we know that he's powerful. I mean, he is the creator of the universe, right? And he's loving, he's merciful, he's forgiving. And the list goes on and on and on about his great characteristics of who he is. And because of his greatness, his glory is intrinsic, meaning that it's because of who he is that he has this glory and this greatness. And we, his people, are to actually increase the knowledge around the world of this intrinsic glory. Another way we could say it is that we want people to know about his awesome worth and his unblemished reputation. We want the world to know that. And then at the end of that um, particular psalm, it says, in holy array, basically in holy display. How do we actually do that? Philippians 1.20 tells us, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So we are actually to reveal to the world by increasing or showing, putting on display um, Christ with our bodies. That's what we do. And so by exalting his awesome worth and his unblemished reputation with all our strength, <laughs> with, with sacrifice and worship, and so we are to reveal God's glory, right? And, and we do it also with our bodies in salvation. Because this verse here, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For that you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So when we get saved, we then, with our bodies, glorify God. We increase the knowledge of the world knows about his intrinsic glory, of everything about him, his greatness. Another one is that uh, we are to aim our lives. With our bodies, we are to aim our lives by sacrificing ourselves, sacrificing our glory, and desiring God above all others or all things. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells that, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then, of course, John 8.50 says, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Two more, and then we're done. We reveal God's glory to the world through our faithfulness. And Romans 4.20 uh, says this, Yet with respect to the promise of God, we did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And then finally, the last one, how we actually give glory through our bodies, and increasing the knowledge of his greatness. Uh, we reveal God's glory to the world through praising him and thanking him for his wonderful works and promises. 
and that's in Psalm 50:23. The one who offers thanksgiving at his sac- sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show salvation of God. So to give God glory doesn't uh, add anything to God, for he is who he is, right? <laughs> he, he breeds all, all the glory. He is, he is it, just because of who he is. We give God glory when we actually just increase the knowledge of God's infinite, intrinsic glory, his awesome worth, and his unblemished reputation to the world and our bodies. So um, through our salvation, through our faithfulness, through aiming everything to our lives, uh, to sacrifice ourselves, to sacrifice our glory, and to put God above everything else. And then finally, as we mentioned, um, praising him thanking him for all he's done and all his works. Dear God, I thank you so much for this hour, and we thank you that your word is encouraging and it's uh, revealing and it um, gives us a purpose and a direction. And we pray that your word would, as it promises, not return empty um, in our hearts as we study it tonight. And so we uh, thank you for this, and I pray for these that uh, go out and live their lives as believers tomorrow, that you'd help them, that you'd give them courage to, to do it again tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.